Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 2, 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we um, move to part three of a four-part series called The Essentials of the Faith. And the topic for this morning is good news for the world. And maybe you thought when the scripture was read that I forgot what the season of the year was. But I didn't. I chose that because it seems like to me, as I thought about this topic this week, that that's the first time the good news concerning Jesus Christ was announced with the language of good news to the whole world. That's what the angel said on that day. I bring you glad tidings, good news, which shall be for all people. All people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Later, the apostles, extending that theme, and Jesus himself extending that theme, would help us to understand that that baby in a manger was the Savior of the world. So when we think about the essentials of the Christian faith, we chose to address number three, not in any particular order, the good news for the world. And as you know, the good news for the world was not just announced the first time, certainly in a unique way, but not the first time on the hillside when Jesus was born. Good news for the world was actually predicted at the beginning. Several weeks ago when I talked about the cross of Christ as an essential part of the faith that we call Christian, I reminded you of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where there's a prediction. Right at the very beginning of our canon of Scripture, that the seed of the woman is going to be born and that seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. And the church, looking back at this, realizes it was a prediction concerning Jesus Christ. That one day, the seed of the woman, namely Jesus Christ, the God-man, would crush the head of Satan. And it began through the victory over death on the cross. But you know that's not the end of the story. 
the head of the serpent, has not been finally crushed. The good news is someday it will be. The message continued from Genesis 3.15 to the story of Abraham. In the story of Abraham, two people who were barren and could not have children were given a promise, Sarah and Abraham, that they would inherit a son. And it would come from their very body. And it came from their very body when they were 190 years old. And that son would be what? A blessing to the whole world. Again, the church in retrospect looks back at the blessing of Isaac through Abraham and Sarah and sees the lineage of Christ unbroken right up to the cross, the one who would bless the whole world. Did you ever wonder how Abraham first heard that message? Some might speculate that Abraham knew the story. That when he heard the declaration concerning his son blessing the whole world, he understood by divine revelation the whole story concerning Jesus. That would be wonderful. I don't think it's true. I think all Abraham knew is that he was old and he had no children and God had promised him a child and that somehow that child was going to bless the earth. It seems to me that's all he knew. And he grasped hold of the promise, the good news, shall we say. And the good news was bigger than he ever imagined. That good news, as we understand it in the New Testament, not just announced on a Galilean hillside, when Jesus was born, was continued to be repeated and announced over and over again throughout the New Testament. And here's what we know. What we know is that the early disciples, they received the good news with joy. A recognition that the kingdom of God had come in the person of Jesus Christ, and they were delighted by it. And you know what they thought? Israel's Messiah has finally come. And they were both right and wrong at the same time. Yes, Israel's Messiah had come, but the Messiah or the Savior for the whole world had also come in the same person, namely Jesus Christ. And it took them years before they finally figured that out. Three years under the tutorship of Jesus, and then later after he's gone, after he's gone and even after the angel has made the announcement about going into all the world, even after the great commission in Jesus' own words, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news, baptizing everyone in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. They still didn't get it. You know when it finally dawned on them? You know, if you know your Bibles. It was when Peter... Peter, God bless him, the loudmouth preacher, Peter, who had an incredible experience on the day of Pentecost and still didn't understand it, that his message was for the whole world. When finally Peter got a revelation from God, 
that revelation from God, of course, was those unclean animals coming down. And Peter heard a voice that said, get up and eat. And he said, no, no, Lord, I'll never do that. That's, that's unclean. And in the vision, the voice said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Of course, once he awoke, there was a Gentile. A Gentile at his doorstep. A person, according to him, who was unclean. And he realized this this good news is for the Gentiles too. We, we look at that and say, wow, that's wonderful. But so, why didn't he get it? You realize how revolutionary it was for him the first time? The Messiah is for the world. And then, of course, the unfolding of this good news for the world begins to take place in the midst of controversy, right? The good news for the world, Peter embraces and endorses and says it's for everybody, including the Gentiles. And then when Paul and others go out to speak to the Gentiles, the Gentiles begin to receive Christ and see him as the Savior of the world and of their life, but they don't follow all the regulations of the Jewish law. And Paul says... Should they? And then they have a council in Acts chapter 15 where they all get together and they say, what should we do about this? And the apostles, even the conservative Jewish apostles, finally came to the conclusion that the Mosaic law was not, apart from the moral law of God, was not in all its detail for the Gentiles. They should receive the good news with joy and follow Christ. And the ceremonial laws were, well, insignificant. Why? Because they were fulfilled in Jesus. By the way, that's the unfolding of the message so far. But here's another wrinkle on that message called the good news. When Jesus came, he announced, I came on one occasion in the synagogue. He opened a scroll from Isaiah, and he read the scroll, and he said, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing today. And what was the prophecy? The prophecy was that he came to proclaim the good news, release for the captives, sight for the blind, for the captives and for the poor, for everyone, in every condition of life, Jesus came to release them. Now, some would look at that passage, not I, but some, and they would see that passage as a description of a spiritual reality relatedly exclusively to the salvation of the soul. I just want to notify you, I don't think that's what it's about. Oh, you say, you mean you don't believe in the salvation of the soul? No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is when Jesus announced the good news, he wasn't just saying, come to me and I'll forgive your sins and you can have a new life. He was saying, what I'm about to do is I'm about to enter into this world with the new kingdom of God, and you watch me. I'll tell you what the good news is. 
It is about the salvation of the soul, but it's about so much more. It's about people who are walking right beside me tomorrow who are blind. And the good news is I can touch them and heal them. Their eyes. The good news is I walk along the way and I see someone who cannot walk and I can touch him and he raises up. And I can see a leper who's dying from a disease that's dreadful and I can touch him and he can be healed. And I can see a woman who's bleeding uncontrollably and no doctor could ever touch her and I will touch her. Ah, not really. She'll just touch me and she'll be healed. This is the good news for the world, says Jesus. Do you see the expansive nature of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is huge. It's everything. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation, the creator of heaven and earth, and all things are his, including the material reality outside that window The good news is about everything. Which is why in Romans chapter 8, when Paul is waxing eloquent concerning the good news, he said, I want to give you a glimmer of something else concerning the good news. Here it is. The whole earth is groaning. That's a fascinating image, isn't it? The earth the material reality, the soil, the air, it's groaning. It's groaning to be released from its bondage to decay. It's groaning to be released from the oppression of those who take the creation mandate and twist it to make nature conform always to its will, no matter what the consequences. Creation is groaning under the weight of sin. And one day, it's going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. One day, the good news is that God, through Jesus Christ, is re going to restore this whole earth. May I pause and apologize to those of you who have an eschatological understanding of the end of the world that means fiery destruction. I don't believe it. The end of the world is the restoration of what God originally created as perfect. In all its manifestations... Not just human, but material. That is the big message of the gospel. I'm just telling you right now, I'm going overtime, okay? I, I'm not apologizing. I'm going, I look at that clock and I got 10 minutes, there's no chance, okay? That was just point number one. Point number two. By the way, point number one was the message, if you're taking notes. Point number two is the motivation. If that's the message of the good news concerning Jesus Christ for the whole world, what's the motivation for us to share the good news concerning Jesus Christ for the whole world? 
Well, one is just common sense. There's a lot of common sense in the Bible. Do you notice that? And on one occasion, Jesus makes it really clear. He says, if you've got a light that could shine and bring brilliance to darkness, would you keep it under a bucket, a bushel? Would you hide it? Of course you wouldn't. Unless you were a hoarder. Unless you didn't want anybody else to be blessed by the light. Of course you wouldn't. You would shine it to the whole earth. The whole world. You know the context of that. One of the contexts. It's in multiple gospels. But one of the contexts in Matthew. It comes out of the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says to his followers. You are the light of the world. And if you're the light of the world. Why would you keep your light under a bucket? You ought to hold it up and shine it to the world. What's the motivation? If we have the light, why wouldn't we share it? What kind of person would have that light and keep it to themselves? Jesus might say, Well, the kind of person that would do that would take a treasure and bear it in the ground. Another parable of the talents. No, your light that you have is for the whole world. So your motivation is, I've got to share it. It's for everybody. What's the second part of your motivation? I like to think of it this way. Your motivation ought to be sharing the good news with the world because You want to introduce people to your friend. You you know the delight of introducing somebody to your friend? You you know that. You're you're a good friend. A person who is dear to you. You You just have fun introducing them to somebody else. This is my best friend. This is my good friend. Why do you do that? Because you want to share your friend with others because he or she has been such a delight to you. Now, there's a little twist to that. Here's the twist. Sometimes, especially in sixth grade, you didn't really want to share your friends with others. Why? Because you were afraid they'd become best friends with the one you shared your friend with. You understand how childish that is and how silly it is when it comes to Jesus as your friend. Jesus has got enough for everyone, always, all the time, And you'll never lose any of him by introducing him to another. The motivation is, well, you just can't hide the good news. The motivation is, you have to share your friends. Another motivation is, is you get the opportunity to lift a curtain on reality. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a magician, but I didn't want to put the time in. I always wanted the sleight of hand. This is not a sleight of hand, but you know the magician's curtain or box or whatever. Once it's lifted, the veil, you see something you never saw before. The motivation for the gospel, it seems to me, is to lift a curtain Can we pretend like there's a curtain right here in the middle of this aisle? 
and I'm talking to you and you're watching me and your entire reality is us and right alongside you is them, how about if we just lift the curtain and you realize all these people are here. You're worshiping with this entire congregation. Now extend that metaphor to this reality. Jesus says, on occasion, whenever you follow me, I'm going to lift a curtain so that you can see the rest of reality. With the eyes of faith, with the spiritual sight that's been given to the spiritually blind, you will be able to see God at work when others cannot. You will be able to see the demonstration of God's grace when it looks like there is no grace. You'll be able to see with the eyes of faith layers of reality that have existed parallel to your existence that you were blind to. And if that's the good news, or part of the good news, part of our motivation is to lift the curtain so people can see reality. The third part of our motivation is we get to offer people real hope. Everybody wants hope. It's the longing of every human heart. Everyone knows that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Every grand venture of justice is to repair something that's damaged. And with the gospel, we share the hope that Jesus, the one who died and was raised again, really will make everything new. The motivation in a word eternity eternal life that's what motivates us to share all the full all the emptiness of the human heart all the unmet expectations all the desires Oh, by the way, even the ones that are twisted, the desires, which are often twisted because of selfishness and sin, those desires will be completely fulfilled through eternity. I don't have words for it. No one does. Except maybe to sing the hallelujah chorus. The deepest longings of the human heart will be eternally satisfied in the presence of God. Yeah, that's the motivation, isn't it? Motivation enough. 
I told you I'm going to go long because I've got one more main point. What's the method? Oh, there's all kinds of methods. Let me show you one method. Can we throw that chart up there? Um, any of you recognize this method? Uh-huh. Sharing the good news, right? That's what has often been called the navigator model, right? And if you're a good navigator, you know how to draw that thing on the back of a napkin <laughs> or a paper cup or anything else, right? And you basically say in a nutshell, let me give you the good news. Here it is. The wages of sin is death. We earned it. The gift of God is eternal life. It's free. And the way to leave death and to find eternal life is this bridge called the cross. Because Jesus stood in your place and bridged the cap between you and God. That's a wonderful image. I've been doing this for, oh, I forget. Let's just do the, the professional ministry part. I've been doing this for more than 25 years, and I've never used it. I, I'm not judging anybody who has. I've never used it, not once. But it's one method. Or how about this one? You can, you can take the slide away because everybody's going to keep staring at it. Um, how about this method? It's frequently called the four spiritual walls, and it has numerous iterations. And it goes something like this, abbreviated. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Sin separates you from God, and that plan is obscured because of it. True. Through Jesus, you can know God's love and God's plan for your life. And fourth, you must receive Jesus to experience his love and God's plan for your life. There are untold millions of people who have heard that message and come to faith in Christ. In 25 years, I've never used it. Just haven't. It's not the method I employ. What's my point? There's many methods. There's one message. Figure out your method and communicate the one message. I uh, was talking to a fellow not long ago who has been doing ministry for years. And he said to me, you know, Bob, I discovered something in the last couple of years. I discovered that the method, and I won't name it, that he was using, was not terribly effective, at least for me. And he said, you know what I started doing? He said, I started inviting students to read the Bible with me. Just read the Bible with me. Mostly international students, an invitation, and some would. And he said, as we read, it became a discovery process. I had so many opportunities to speak about the good news, and we just, one day after another, one chapter after another. And he said, what I found out is that eventually... A lot of these people, and bear in mind, this wasn't 
an objective. He wasn't trying to figure it out. He was just doing something. He said, eventually, a lot of these people would say to me, they would turn to me and they would say, you know, I think, I think I'm a Jesus follower. I, I think, I think I'm a Christian. And he said, then we would talk more about what that meant. And before long, they were baptized as followers of Christ. Some of you may look at the first two methods and say, oh, those are better. And look at this one and find it deficient. I don't. It's a method. As a matter of fact, if you want to look at the method of Jesus, it's kind of hard to look at the method of Jesus and see anything except service. It was through service that he continually introduced the good news. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He met a woman at a well that nobody would talk to. He told a story about an outcast called a Samaritan. He called a man out of a tree who was a tax collector and despised and hated by everyone else and went to his house. He just did one act of service after another to humanity. And through his act of service, the gospel was revealed and they began to follow him. Yeah, I know you're not Jesus, and neither am I. But I want you to consider the possibility that service is a sharing of the gospel. Finally, I want to say one more thing about a method. It's a quick story. It comes from Leo Tolstoy. And it's in an essay that he wrote, or a short story, I guess you could call it. A short story entitled, Walk in the Light While There is Light. If you've never read that story, I would highly recommend. Just, you can get everything online now, right? Do it on your phone. Read it today. story about two young men who grew up in a Roman home. And Tolstoy's trying to recreate what he thinks the early Christian kind of witness might have looked like. And I think he's on to something. Two young men grew up in the same Roman home. One of them was a slave that was given his freedom by the other young man's father. So there's one young man in the home who's the natural birth of the father. Another young man is a slave and the father has given him his freedom. And at some point, The father of these two young men decide that they need more. This man has worked his way up from the ground. He did not have an education. He worked really hard as a merchant to make his way up. Of course, this is a story of fiction. He made his way up financially, but he was empty. And he felt like maybe the source of his emptiness is he didn't have an education. So he sends his two children, one of which, of course, is the slave, 
that's been freed and his real son. He sends them to a philosopher, a teacher, which was common back then, traveling philosophers. And he turns them over to this teacher to train them in wisdom. Julius is the real son and Pamphilius is the slave who was freed. And partway through their course of study, Pamphilius announces to Julius and the teacher that he thinks he's done and he's, he's going to go on and try to live his life. They part ways and they don't see each other for years and years. And then one day, Julius, who has now come into a great amount of money because of his father and is basically living the life of Riley, a little bit like the prodigal son, just spending his father's wealth and enjoying the high life, he runs into Pamphilius, this former slave in the market. And he says, oh, my, it's been here. It's good to see you. And they get to talking. And he asks them about what he's doing. And Pamphilius says, well, I'm a part of this community. We call them Christians. Well, of course, Julius knew all about the Christians. And he talked to Pamphilius about the crazy things he heard about Christians, like eating their young, you know, the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. Is that true? And they had this conversation concerning what Christians were really like. And you know what Pamphilius said? I'm summarizing the story really quickly. He basically said to Julius, come and see. Come and see. You don't have to believe just come be with us. Matter of fact, we have lots of people we've invited into our community. And they live with us. Even though they don't believe. Come and see. Listen to what we say. Watch how we live. And see if you want to be a part of us. I don't think any of these methods that I just mentioned are the silver bullet. But I do think, frequently, the last method is the neglected one. We think we have to come up with a plan, a program, and then bring them to community. Don't we? What about the model? Just come and see. Be with us. And see if you want to join us. It's called being a Christ follower. I would imagine that some people will come and see and they'll shake their head and they'll say, these people are crazy. And other people will say, this is what I've been looking for all my life. So why don't we try? Invite them to come and see. Be a part of your life. Be a part of your home. Be a part of this community. And let God do his work. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we uh, thank you for the message that you have given us concerning the gospel. We thank you for the obvious motivation to share it with others. And we thank you, Lord, that there are multiple methods. And some of those methods fit others better than the other one.
But certainly, Lord, we ought to all unite around the idea that the good news is for the world and we are the ambassadors of that good news. So give us insight to understand how to share within the, the confines of our own giftedness and how to allow others to share within the confines of their own giftedness and that all of us can invite people to come and see what God has done. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.